Hey, hey, how's everybody doing? My name is Christian Wagner and I'm the Militant Thomist. So today we're going to be continuing that series that I've been doing on certainty. And right now we're going to be getting into the means of attaining certainty. So if you remember from the last video, which was a week or two ago, I have uh, I, the first video I defined certainty and then I proved certainty. And now in this video, it's going to be more so going over those things which are contained in that necessary premise, which I have um, I've thus shown in the last video. And those are going to be those means uh, by which we can reach that judgment of certainty, removing all uh, reasonable doubt. I'm certain I'm having a good time. So true, King. Hi, Christian. Hope all is well. Thank you, Ivan. So, but before we get into there, remember to go to patreon.com slash militantomus if you want access to PDFs, um, extra videos, the weekly chill stream that I do for patrons and uh, a lot of other stuff. And then also, if you go into the description below this video, you'll see that I have linked two books. And uh, both of these books are extremely helpful when it comes to uh, this question. So the first one, I think it's the first one I'm trying to remember, is going to be The First Principles of Knowledge by Rickaby. And that's going to be a very in-depth uh, analysis and then refutation of, um, of certain theories of skepticism. And then the second one is going to be that uh, a very minor sort of introductory work by Father Copens. Um, on logic. So it's going to be a textbook on logic that's in manual format and provides a very uh, easy and very short introduction to the question. So I do reprint both of those. So uh, if you buy them, I would be much appreciative because that is how I make money. So let's get right into it. Christian B. Morber, Sotro. This is going to be split into two parts. Oh my! The, look, the other Paul put Morbius up there, and I didn't even notice. That's that's crazy on the top right of the screen. How do I remove that? There you go. That's better. Man, that was I can't believe he got me. So I'm going to share my screen, and this is going to be split into two parts. Um, and then the first one's going to be interior. So this is going to be uh, talking about that interior certainty that we have in the intellect. The next is going to be exterior. So we're going to talk about things like um, our outward senses and uh, the reliability of our senses. We're going to be talking about um, the reliability of authority, of witnesses. Uh, we're going to be talking about the reliability of a lot of things. That and then all of this stuff, uh, I feel like I shouldn't even have to. The very fact that I that I have to do these videos just shows the um, the the tendency of man to to be dumb. Really, really, not really the tendency of man. Really, the tendency of intellectuals to be dumb. Because the very fact that I have to tell you guys and and prove to you guys that we can have certainty about our own existence. The very fact that there was people that sowed doubt in people's minds about our, uh, the certainty we can have about things like our own existence, it's, it's ridiculous. Because really all I'm doing right now is I'm just telling you common sense and then putting it in systematized language and then proving it and showing its relation between, between each one of these concepts. The very fact that I have to do these videos is just extremely depressing. So... Um, 
so Lucas, um, I am certain that I'm having a good time. Well, I am having a very sad time right now because the very fact that that the the turn that Western philosoph- philosophical culture has taken that this is even an open question. Like the fact that we have certainty about um, our sense perceptions, like the very fact that I have to prove that to people is just is just idiotic. The very fact that that's a question. This is just so so sad. It's so sad that we have to do that. But man is is just forever um, trying to be unique and following uh, a bunch of a bunch of extremely idiotic ideas. Like like seriously, just look around you. And this is this is gonna be my rant session for a day. And we'll also talk about common sense uh, next time. So this has to do a lot with common sense. Is look around you at like ninety percent of what's being uh, said. Well, ninety percent of what's being said that sounds ridiculous. And just consider it like people just need to think about what they're doing for like 30 seconds and they can realize that it's just stupid. It's just stupid. Like common, the very fact that you have a brain and that you think about something for two seconds should make you realize that you need to stop. Like, like it's a, it's a question, like whether I can, I can read this book and understand what it's saying truly, where I can have a general certainty removing um, removing any um, reasonable doubt about what this book says. Like, that's just stupid. I pick up the book and I read it. I know what it says. Like, it's obvious. Like, you're an idiot if you deny that. Like, you should be thrown in a mental ward. You shouldn't be um, You shouldn't be seen as a brilliant philosopher for coming up with these things. They're stupid. It's just ridiculous. Um, so I believe feminist philosophers have absolutely destroyed philosophy in America. Can women be philosophers? So I actually have been um, a few good uh, female philosophers, but they're very few and far. Um, they're, they're, they're very um, few and far between there. There's um, there, there's not many of them. And you want to know the reason behind this? Because when it comes to philosophy, uh, while theology cert- certainly takes uh, the supernatural virtues, it's basically uh, the virtue of faith, which is kind of mixed, you can say, informed by understanding uh, in expressing um, the, the faith which resides within us. But when it comes to philosophy, philosophy takes a certain amount of natural virtue in order to be a good philosopher. Um, that, that, that is extremely important. So when it comes to um, it being in accordance with, with one's nature, in, in a natural state, in an ordinary state, what you're going to have for, for women is especially uh, going, um, going in, living in accordance with a good system of uh, moral philosophy and just a, just a basic Catholic uh, ethics system that you can get in uh, Copens, for example, or Grenier, or really anybody, just any, there's like a million of them. Uh, what you're going to see when it comes to the uh, the role of of women, like in ninety nine point ninety nine percent of the time, unless you unless you have them um, being in a convent or something, or for some reason they have a special uh, charism, which does happen, ninety nine percent of the time it's going to be um, getting married at a relatively young age and then having children. That's going to be the virtuous life for them. Being being formed in virtue is the taking care of the household and the uh, education of children. But whereas when it comes to what makes a good philosopher, um, what makes a good philosopher in this in the sense of scientific philosophy, um, it's going to take 
just a very long time of study, which is not going to be possible when it comes to the virtuous life of a woman. So in in normal cases, no, it's not going to work out. But in uh, you might have like a super genius woman, which has happened in a few cases where they are not terrible. You also might have in other cases, you might have a nun with a special charism to where uh, she doesn't have that duty to a uh, husband and children who are going to be able to fulfill the precepts of being a good philosopher. But generally, uh, no, no, generally speaking, no, unless unless except in very small cases uh, where it's otherwise. So, yeah, but, but what happens when you get uh, these women being philosophers is it's not, I don't think that it necessarily has to do with, uh, with them being women, although that does have something to do about it because of um, if, if you read any good scholastic uh, psychology, they'll tell you about the differences between men and women when it comes to uh, intellectual contemplation. The fact that uh, women aren't necessarily geared towards uh, producing a good academic work. Um, it's just it's just the way it is. So just see and cope. Anybody listening who's getting mad. But um, where, where was I? I feel like I was... Oh, oh, yeah. So it doesn't necessarily have to do with um, with the fact that they're women, although that does have to do something with it. But I would uh, I would say it more so has to do with the fact of that lack of virtue. So, yeah. Yeah. So example, Eva Braun. She where is she? She's at St. John's College, Annapolis. I thought about going there, but... Uh, oh, wait, 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 wait. She immigrated up, born of a Jewish family. Okay. Early life. Interesting. The emperor has no clothes and his advisor are at the philosophy department. Yes. I'm trying to... Edith... Stein is also another good one. I always mix up my my female German philosophers. But yes, she was the reason behind her being very based was the fact that she was um, a nun. I'm trying to think of the other one I'm thinking of, where her husband was a an extremely good philosopher, and she she. She was just the reason she was so good is because she was just super smart. I'm trying to trying to think about bro, what does uh, Aristotle say about women in their nature? I don't know what does he say. Maybe um, Alice von Hildebrand. That's who it is. That's who I was thinking of. Alice von Hildebrand. Was it? Let me think. Yeah. So those Edith. So. Hildebrand. I think it's I think it's her that I'm thinking of. Actually, yes, it is her that I'm thinking about. Yes, Dietrich von Hildebrand's wife. That is who I'm thinking of. Yes, yes. So, 
Yes. So the reason why Alice von Hildebrand was a good philosopher is because she was just like freaking brilliant. Um, it had nothing to do with uh, her being like crazy or anything like that. But the reason behind the reason behind uh, Edith Stein was because she was a nun. So I think those are kind of the two premier examples. She was an outspoken critic of feminism. Very based, very based. Yeah, so they're very rare. They're very, very rare. Okay, but we will we will actually get into what we're supposed to talk about. Commenting for a cool shout out. Velator Theologe. Theologia. I don't know why I said Theologia. Um, are you saying that Oprah isn't one of the philosophers of our age? So true. My intro intro political philosophy professor was a base traditional Catholic and has like six children, including a newborn. Um, uh, there. The Blessed Virgin Mary is the greatest philosopher of all time. And other than that, women should keep their silence. Well, it's the, the problem with making a, a statement like that is that you're equivocating on the word uh, philosopher. Is that when it comes to like the act, I, I would say the habit of, of philosophizing or the habit of even of uh, being a theologian. Like obviously the Blessed Virgin Mary is going to. Um, exceed all others when it comes to the depth of her contemplation because of the um, exuberance of, of her virtue. But she wouldn't like make Magud like intro to philosophy professor or anything like that. <laughs> uh, they will claim that Kendrick Lamar is a modern day philosopher. Okay, we, we I promise fifteen minutes in, um, enough shenanigans. I'm I'm turn I'm look not looking at the comments for a few minutes. We're going to get to the means of attaining certainty. Okay, so in general, um, there are two means of attaining certainty. So first, we have direct means of attaining certainty, which are going to be our cognitive powers, and then indirect means of attaining certainty, which is going to be the authority of others. And then under direct means, it can be intellect, which is going to be interior. And then it can also, and then also common sense is interior, although I'll be covering it under exterior uh, for some reason. Um, and then, well, because common sense has to, uh, that, that's why I'm covering under exterior, because common sense has to do a lot about um, the agreement of many people. So, and then also uh, sensation is going to, sensation is going to be exterior. It's going to be our senses, which are going to kind of reach out to, to the outward world. So those are kind of the, the basic uh, divisions, direct, indirect, uh, interior, exterior, when it comes to the way in which um, we are going to attain certainty. So first uh, with the intellect. So the intellect is the means by which certainty is achieved since certainty is an intellectual state. So all of these above are going to relate somehow to our intellect, even indirect. Uh, you can say when it comes to our judgment 
of the um, the reliability of the other person. We're still going to be in some sense uh, uh, relating to our intellect. So um, the senses uh, are what furnish the matter of the judgments of the intellect, since all um, all things come from uh, sense perception. So it involves the certainty, one, of consciousness, two, of our primary ideas, three, of immediate analytical judgments, four, of the intellectual memory, and five, of the reasoning process. That's going to make up the certainty of the intellect, and it kind of goes from most basic to, to more complex. And then we're going to be going over each one of these five in detail. So concerning consciousness... So we uh, consciousness is the reflect perception of our own acts, that is, of ourselves as acting. So to say that we have certainty um, concerning our um, consciousness is to say that I know that I know, basically, that that's going to be. So we, we, we know that we have uh, certainty itself. So the thesis is going to be the reliability of consciousness is including in our capacity to know truth. So you can't separate the the argument, uh, the thesis is going to be that you cannot separate our that uh, self-evident axiom, which we went over uh, last video, that we can know truth from um, implicitly contained in there is that um, that idea that we have reliability of consciousness. So the capacity to know truth is a self-evident axiom, as stated in the last video. Since this is a self-evident axiom, it is something that we know and have certainty of by definition. Something which is self-evident is something which we have certainty about. Therefore, it is something we are conscious of. So since consciousness is that reflect perception of our own acts, so since we have that reflect perception that we know truth, because something which is self-evident is something which we know. And since that axiom is about ourselves, necessarily, um, by consequence, what we're going to we're going to come to is that consciousness is something that is um, something that is self-evident uh, by necessary connection with that premise. So it's self-evident axiom to us. And therefore, we um, we have that knowledge of our own uh, knowledge, so to speak, that reflect knowledge as the axiom is self-evident. And therefore, we have consciousness because that is what is consciousness by definition. So it is only through consciousness that we know our own intellectual acts. Therefore, if consciousness were not reliable, we cannot really know whether we are eliciting acts of knowledge. And then when it comes to those categories within consciousness, um, what we have just proven, consciousness covers the following objects of knowledge. So first, our own existence. Second, the existence of our intellectual acts. Then third, the existence of our internal sense and of its acts. So by the very fact that we have consciousness, um, those, those three are now covered. So second, uh, concerning primary ideas. So primary ideas, which are going to, um, if you want to know more about this, in the beginning of Father Copen's uh, textbook on logic, he's going to go over in, in great detail what primary ideas are. But generally speaking, primary ideas are those ideas which are formed by the intellect of what exists. So universally and abstractly, such as being, truth, color, size, cause, etc. So when it comes to those concrete iterations of certain things, Let's say, um, 
I have these two things right here. These two matchboxes. I have my big matchbox and I have my small matchbox. So with these two matchboxes, I look at them and um, I'm like, okay, this is a matchbox, a concrete individual matchbox. This right here, I look at it. Okay, look at it, look at it, consider. This is a concrete matchbox too. So these two concrete matchboxes, I would say, okay, uh, in consideration of my intellect, I'm going to say that these two are um, two species, two individuals of a single species or two species of the same genus. So from this, um, I've considered that primary idea of, um, of genus. And I also can consider even more simply if I have this, this pen, I have this book, say, okay, this pen is a being, this book is a being, therefore, boom, that I, I from these two concrete iterations of being, I have now that abstract notion of being, which is common to these two. So these uh, primary ideas um, existing universally and abstractly, those things are going to be objectively true. And that would mean that they are conformable to objects really existing. So those very basic ideas that don't exist concretely, but which, um, which I mean, don't exist. Uh, yeah, they don't exist concretely, but they, um, they in the mind are, are conformable to concrete iterations of the universal. So the proof of this is if these ideas were not objectively true, not conformable to objects really existing, our commonest knowledge would be an illusion. If, for instance, being truth, substance, etc., were mere figments of the imagination or the intellect, we could never know anything. Therefore, they are objectively true. So this must be contained in that self-evident axiom that we can know truth. So from the very fact that we can know truth, we have to um, have these primary ideas as objectively true, or it would just destroy any notion of our ability to know truth. Because if I can't have that simplest notion of being, then I can't really um, be said to have any other notion of truth. Because how can I know like this pen if I don't have a notion of being? Like, that would just be, uh, that'd just be stupid. So analytical judgments. So we can also have certainty about those. So a judgment and an analytical judgment is, oops, sorry. Analytical judgment is a judgment wherein a perception of the meaning of the idea leads to the perception of an agreement or disagreement between a subject and a predicate. So now we are combining, um, we are combining those first ideas, which are in the mind or those first ideas with uh, certain things out in the, uh, in the world. So an example of this is that a um, is that a part is not greater than a whole. Or if I said that uh, this, I don't know. Let's see what I can find. Ooh, this book, this book right here, um, is a being. There you go. This book is a being. That would be an analytical judgment. I am having an agreement between the subject of that, which is this book, and the predicate, which is being. So that is a mix between something uh, 
something which is concrete, something which is abstract, something which is particular, something which is universal. I'm saying that this is a particular, um, although we don't uh, we don't speak in this way properly, but uh, because being isn't a genus, but this is a, a specific, uh, I guess you could say, iteration of a being. So the uh, the thesis, which is going to be presented here, is that immediate analytical judgments can never be false. And notice these uh, these immediate analytical judgments are going to not be, like I said, uh, between something which is concrete and abstract, uh, something which is from sensory and then something which is from intellectual. But this is going to be uh, between two primary uh, ideas. So uh, it would be like if I said part and whole are primary ideas which exist in the intellect. So uh, the first proof is that this is made evident by considering their very nature, for they consist in affirming or denying explicitly what the very idea of the subject contained or excluded implicitly. Thus, all immediate analytical judgments do no more than affirm or deny explicitly what the subject of them contained or excluded implicitly before the judgment was formed. So that's just a fancy way of saying um, that when it comes to our ideas of comparing um, and forming judgments based on those first ideas that we have, all we are doing when we do that is just bringing out what's already there. So um, if we can know what a part is and if we can know what a whole is, we're bringing out that uh, implicit relation which exists uh, between the two. And implicitly contained in partness is the fact that it is not greater than wholeness. So proof number two is that our intellect has the power to know truth. Therefore, that can give us real certainty, which is implied in the capacity for intellect to know truth or which must be objectively true if the intellect can know truth at all. But such are these judgments. For if our intellect could not be relied on in these judgments, then the intellect could never be relied on in any judgments, for none are more evident. So remember, when, when we went back and thought about certainty, it's going to be a certain judgment. So these are the most basic. These analytical judgments are the most basic of judgments. So if we cannot have certainty about these judgments, then we really can have no certainty about any judgments. And we know that we have certainty about judgments. Therefore, we know that we can have certainty about these most basic judgments. So next, memory. So this is going to be like ma, like ma, uh, Cartesian, um, ma, ma, like uh, world was created five seconds ago, and then it's all like fake and stuff. Yeah. So thesis uh, eight, the we all know what memory is, so I don't really need to even, even go into it. But thesis eight, the reliability of our memory is contained in our power to know truth. So we do not maintain that we can recall all our former perceptions, but simply that when our memory does recall a former perception and judges, and so and, this and is very important here, and judges with certainty that the object now recalled is identical with an object perceived before, it is reliable in such a judgment. So bringing our memory in judgment of certain things before us, we can have reliability when we reflect upon that, uh, the certainty of, of that process, that we are going to certainly have a, um, a 
a true um, ability to recall an identity between an object before us and an object before. So if I think about, okay, I'm not even going to look at them. So I think about my Suma. I think that um, I remember that they are books. And then I have this book right here before me. I am making that certain judgment that this book is a book just as those books are books. So I'm remembering that this is like those. Or if I turn around and look at them, they were just as I remembered them. These objects that I just looked at are the same objects as the objects that I had looked at before. I don't know. Uh, maybe earlier today I was, I was just looking at my sumo. I was just gazing and contemplating its beauty. That is that that is the way in which uh, memory works. So the proof is going to be that um, is included in the intellect's power to know truth, without which all connected thought and expression of thought would be impossible. But the reliability of our memory is such, for unless our memory were reliable, we could not think connectedly, since one judgment would be forgotten before another could be compared with it. And no thought could be expressed because no words could be remembered to express them. So uh, what's going to happen is that in the process of our thinking, we have what's called discursive reasoning. So we go from, uh, from premise to conclusion, premise to conclusion, premise to conclusion, premise to conclusion. You go from, you go from one to one to one to one to one to one. We don't have like the angels and like the divine mode of intellection. We don't have this instantaneous um, sort of, of uh, perception of cause and effect. And we don't instantly perceive, but rather we, we go step by step by step by step by step. That's just how we, that's just how we reason. That's just how we reason. Uh, that's why we have syllogisms and such. But since there is that discursive reasoning, and since we are temporal creatures, and since we, um, from the beginning to the end of our syllogism, there is that lapse of time, we have to keep certain ideas in our memory and then recall them at certain points in the reasoning process, the process of acquiring knowledge. So since um, we have this temporal process, unless we had reliable memory, then any sort of a power to know truth would be completely gone. And this is absurd because we had, we showed um, in the last video that it is a self-evident axiom that the very reliability of our memory is contained in that axiom that we know truth. But there is an objection which is brought before us. So we often uh, misremember things. So uh, you have misremembered um a, a certain thing that you learned a while ago and you were, you were just wrong. But uh, in reply to this, what we have to consider is what I strongly emphasized before. If you go back into the, um, go back into this, the dot under the first dots, the, the bullet point of the fourth, first bullet point that we do not maintain that we recall all our former perceptions, but simply that when our memory does recall a former perception and judges with certainty that the object now recalled is identical with an object perceived before it is reliable in such a judgment. So we have to be careful with our memory because from the very uh, fact of time, our memory fades um, in saying in, in the use of our memory in saying that this, this uh, object before we judge it to be like the object um, 
the object now uh, before us as the object before in time that we had seen before. If we make a rash judgment, then it isn't going to be reliable because we don't have that process of making sure that our memory is is um, is uh, as as it is uh, now. So it's from the misuse and abuse of memory rather than its proper use. But the thesis only um, claims uh, the proper use uh, and its reliability. So next is going to be reasoning. And I think this, is this the last one? No, if reasoning and then inner sense. So the, the ninth thesis is that reasoning is reliable. So this is going to be a very easy thing to prove. Um, first, because I don't think uh, you're going to have anybody who says that reasoning. Oh, sorry. Oh. Reasoning is unreliable because they just be, uh, that'd just be the silliest thing. Um, you never hear, they wouldn't even be able to like speak to you. But, um, when it comes to reasoning being reliable, we know that all logical reasoning is based on this principle that the conclusion is implicitly contained in the premises. Hence he who would grant the premises and deny the conclusion would thereby affirm and deny the same thing. But one cannot deny what he affirms. Therefore, whoever grants the premises of logical reasoning cannot deny the conclusion. So the very fact that truths are implicitly contained in other truths. Okay. And then the next one, the last one, which is going to be interior to us, is going to be the inner sense. So the inner sense is the perception of material modifications to the body. So the inner sense testifies to pain and comfort, but not necessarily the cause of those. And the cause has to be gained by process of induction. For example, um... I don't know. I have a certain pain on on my elbow when I am uh, sitting down and uh, typing up these notes. I have that uh, that certain pain. My inner sense is going to testify that I then have pain. Now, let me uh, it now if I through my own uh, faculties um, by a process of induction consider the cause of this pain. Then I could see that it's because my elbow is, I don't know, uh, touching the hot coffee cup next to me. So it's starting to uh, to burn my skin. So those those are two distinct things, though, which is going to be very important when it comes to uh, certain objections to the reliability of the inner sense. So in proof of this, to say that the inner sense is not reliable in its perceptions is the same as to say that those intel, in, uh, identical affections or inner modifications of the animal body, which are perceived, do not really exist. But this cannot be said without absurdity, for to be perceived means to be that which is perceived or to exist as the object of perception. If then those affections did not really exist, they would exist and not exist, which is absurd. So really uh, to deny that inner sense or the perception of material modifications of the body would be to uh, deny the existence of external realities to give material modifications to the body, which would be absolutely absurd. It'd just be stupid. And continuing, so this is going to be the last slide. I thought this was a very interesting um, objection and one which uh, kind of stumped me when I first was reading this section about uh, about how this works with the um, the feeling of the pain of an amputated limb. So how does this work with like, um, what do they call it? Is it called like phantom limb or something? I can't. Phantom limb. 
Yes, Phantom Limb. There you go. Phantom limb syndrome is a condition in which patients experience sensations, whether painful or otherwise, in a limb that does not exist. It has been reported in over 80 in uh, 80 to 100 percent of amputees and typically has a chronic course, often resistant to treatment. Ugh, man, that would be so weird. I couldn't imagine that. If any of you have phantom limb syndrome, I'm so sorry. That sounds so weird. Okay, but the answer to this is that it testifies to the feeling of a pain we grant. And there really is a pain, but it does not testify to the exact cause of that pain. The feeling experienced now may be similar to that experience before the limb was amputated. Then the feeling of pain arose from some lesion in that limb, and now the imagination reproducing this former uh, relation affords us an occasion for judging that the present sensation is again owing to the limb which is no longer there. We feel a lesion which we may be inclined by the force of habit to locate in the amputated limb, whereas the nerves are affected elsewhere, namely at their extremity, which is exposed and very sensitive. That's just crazy. It's really what your mind is doing when you have phantom limb syndrome is you have a certain um, exterior sense, which is true. And then your mind in judging and trying to inductively judge the cause of that pain is putting it in your amputated limb in the limb that doesn't exist so by, by like force of habit. That is, it's so weird. Okay. But that is all I have for you. Thank you for coming here, and next week I will be coming out. <laughs> Bro, this is all well and good, but it doesn't erase the fact that feminist philosophers have conquered the philosophy departments across America. I mean, who cares? Let them burn. Like, literally, when you have, um, when you have sin and wickedness, when you have great just intellectual foolishness, the the uh, snake is really going to eat its own tail because they can't, they cannot um, survive this just um, complete denial of truth. They, they just can't survive it. They're just going to um, fall into, they're, they're just going to fall on their own sword at this point. So let them conquer it, let them destroy it. It's just, uh, and, and you see it every day almost is that the the revolution the uh, revolution that's happening is really just eating its own um, and then they're just uh, kind of killing themselves slowly over time and uh, the, that that's just that's just what is um, is uh, what basically what we have to do is just um, what 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 uh, the great uh, Archbishop Lefebvre I remember uh, Archbishop Lefebvre actually had a good section on this is basically just teach your kid the catechism, pray with them, and educate them. That, that, that's really it. Just get married, uh, be a Catholic, raise a lot of kids, form Catholic community, teach them the faith, um, teach them philosophy. It's very important. Um, I think uh, definitely a solid grounding I was thinking about this last night. Maybe I'll just I'll just pontificate at the end of the stream because I can. But the um, the training of of like high school students in philosophy 
in this type of uh, scholastic philosophy, uh, which are taken down to the level of high schoolers, if they had that formation, it would be, it would do them a, it would do them so much good when it comes to uh, when, when they get out of when the, when they get out of uh, under the the their parents' house and they get out into the world into the non Catholic world because they're inevitably going to have to. Um, deal with it it's just a process of being able to equip them for dealing with it and just taking your your kid to mass twice a month and then occasionally praying a rosary with him well all, all, all good and dandy all good and dandy is um is is not really going to help uh form a robust catholic who is going to be able to um, go out into the world to keep his faith for one, and then for two, uh, be able to convert others to the faith, because this requires a lot, a lot of philosophy when it comes to fixing um, with the preliminaries of the faith. Just completely, you have to completely fix so much false philosophy um, before we even start discussing um, the before we even start discussing theology. You're going to have to fix a lot of it. And that's the uh, the mode in which the fathers worked often is they would they would start with a bunch of natural errors that these people are happen, having. And then they would start to come in with um, with the gospel uh, after that. So the, these preliminaries of thought. So it's so just so important to um, to teach the, these kids uh, logic, to teach them metaphysics to teach them ethics, to teach them, not only teach them the theology, not only have them memorize the catechism, um, uh, the, have them memorize their Baltimore catechism. That's great. Um, that, that's wonderful. But uh, they really need a robust philosophical background in order to not be swept away uh, by a lot of the false philosophy, which is, which is out there. And as, uh, as Archbishop Williamson said, um, these, the, the, these modern, uh, I actually clip that. Maybe I will clip that eventually, but this false philosophy, um, just leads to all sorts of, of depravity, um, that you have. And it just leads to, um, infidelity to the faith. So it's so important to form them in good philosophy that is going to be much more robust than anything uh, that they're going to deal with and to be able to form new objections. Maybe that's a, that's a good project for somebody to engage in, to write, to write a new manual of philosophy, which is going to deal with a lot of the objections, which are going to arise uh, from that. They're, that people are going to hear Um from from just the normal way of of thinking because i mean a lot of a lot of these older manuals are great uh but the the objections nobody's heard for like a hundred years so i don't know how uh how useful they are a lot of them are perpetual and interesting but then others are uh, completely left wanting uh are there any moments in one's existence when they can be absolutely certain of their own perceptions other than while completing an analytic statement. Um, so I think what you have, uh, the, the issue that you're going to have with this statement, um, 
little point. It's right there. Wait, down there. You probably even can't see my finger. But when it comes to the way in which you're uh, thinking of absolute certainty is when we speak of certainty, we're going to more so speak of proper certainty. And proper certainty is going to be certainty without any reasonable doubts. So there are almost almost all moments of your existence, uh, you can have uh, proper certainty for these these judgments that you're having. Because you can be, um, you can remove all certain doubts that you have or reasonable doubts that you have. So like, for example, that's why uh, Descartes' um, process doesn't really work out because it's not reasonable to think that there's a, uh, a demon which is um, infusing bad thoughts into your mind. Yeah, you, my man, write a manual of new philosophy. That's your job, Christian B. Wagner, so true, King, so true. I will, uh, I, that would, that would be fun. That would take reading a lot of, actually, honestly, most of the time now, it's really just, just thinking about it when it comes to, when it comes to philosophy, a lot of it is going to be, um, just being in the world because a lot of these objections, a lot of these ideas are controversial and there's common objections that you're just going to get with talking, just talking to like normal people out there. So a lot of, a lot of these are going to arise. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's it. But I have pontificated for too long. So I will see all of you Kings later. You know, I don't, uh, where is it? There it is. Oh, wait. Remember, it's Trinity died. So we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. Lord.